Wow, I love that last song that we sang. Honestly, that's a song. It's hard to stay seated through that one. Um, today we'll be looking at a story of someone from really, well, it's not the start, but the beginning of repentance to conversion, to faith, straight into evangelism. It's a story we started on a couple of weeks ago before I left to go on the youth retreat. And I realized that two weeks is a long time to pull our memories back. So I want to ask us to do that just really quickly. Two weeks ago, we were looking at the Samaritan at the well. The Samaritan at the well. And... I didn't really get into the actual conversation that Jesus has with this woman at the well because well, the, the context, there's so much that we needed to look at. I had to, we kind of looked at what was surrounding it and we looked at historically what had led up to this moment, what had led up to the tension between Jews and Gentiles. We looked at the, the culture and, and the way that Pharisees maybe, uh, well, those who are at least that really didn't want to associate with the Samaritans would go the long way around instead of passing through Samaria if they were needing to pass through from Judea to Galilee. And we looked at those cultural components. And in doing that, we were able to talk about how Jesus was really shaking it up. He was challenging the culture. He, was, he wasn't stirring the pot. Jesus wasn't a pot stirrer. But he was stirring it up in a sense that he was causing people to actually think about the convictions that they had held that had no basis in what God had told them to do, which is something I think we still need to do today. And we kind of landed it two weeks ago talking about the importance that it has in our lives as we think about how we consider evangelism or how we consider reaching out to people, particularly those who are lost. I said, I love the song that we sang this morning, My Chains Are Gone. I think about what that really means as we get to the, the end of the song and we sing, You Are Mine. What it really means when we're able to sing together and listen to each other singing as if we're singing to each other to remind us that God is our God. This morning, I want to look at the actual conversation that Jesus has with this woman. And, and I've already called out, I think, a little bit how well-known this narrative is. So many people will make reference to it about the moment that Jesus spoke with the Samaritan at the well. And they'll talk about how Jesus didn't spend his earthly ministry only hanging out with the religious elite. Instead, he hung out with those who were maybe even spiritually depraved and needed him most. This story, this picture that we find, it's remarkable. And, and it's so easy to look at it in light of what we talked about two weeks ago. I want to look at it like a football team would look at a football play as they were watching film. Like, this is an incredible play. I want to figure it out. I want to figure out what Jesus does because in this short little chapter, this woman goes from a place of not confessing her sin, not being convicted, to confessing and being convicted, being growing in truth, being converted, and immediately at the end of this passage, John 4, verse 20, um, 
28. She leaves the well. She goes back to the city that she came from, and she tells everybody about the encounter that she just had. As a pastor, this is the play I want to make. As a Christian, this is the play I want to make. I want to see people go from being in chains to singing to one another, you are my God. I want to be careful, though, because Jesus didn't have a playbook. As we saw a couple weeks ago when we were looking at his interaction with Nicodemus, he approaches all of these things relationally. I'm already getting into my sermon notes, so let's back up a little bit. Let's pray, let's read God's word, and let's ask God to do the teaching for us that he might reveal to us the truths that we find here. Father in heaven, I thank you so much for your word. I thank you for your earthly ministry, and I thank you for inspiring your faithful servants to record it. God, ultimately, I thank you for preserving it for as long as you've preserved it, to give us this inspired word, to protect it for us, to give us the ability to study it, to look at it, and to consider how our ministry might look more like yours. God, as we come to you this morning with hearts full of worship from singing to one another, to hearing your people gather together to sing praises in your name, God, I pray that you'd help us to empty ourselves of all the burdens that we bring into this place now and in this time. God, I pray that you'd help us to be focused on you and to set aside all distractions that we might have. God, I pray that you'd help us to look at your word and to consider what it meant when you were first saying it, that we might understand how to correctly apply it to our lives. God, I pray that you'd help us to see what we cannot see without your help. Lord, help us study your word this morning. In Jesus' heavenly name we pray. Amen. Please open your Bible with me to John chapter 4 if you haven't done so already. I'll be reading uh, from the middle of John chapter 4, picking up what well, I read around it last week or two weeks ago. So we'll be picking up in verse 7. The Bible says, A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For the Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God, and who it was was saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us this well, and he drank from it himself, as, he did, as did his sons and his livestock. And Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up for, to eternal life. And the woman said to him, Sir, 
Give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. And the woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. And Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to Him, I know that the Messiah is coming, He who is called the Christ, and when He comes, He will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. This is an amazing interaction that takes place. If you weren't here two weeks ago, let me remind you that that Jesus is somewhat fleeing because as he says, his time has not yet come. He's had an effective ministry in Judea. John the Baptist has led the way, paved the way. Many have been baptized, and and the religious elite have somewhat gotten their way. John the Baptist is now imprisoned. But now they've gotten word that somebody else is out doing the ministry of God. More people are being baptized under Jesus' ministry than even were being baptized under John the Baptist's ministry. So Jesus decides he needs to go to Galilee. Passing through Galilee, Judea is at the bottom of the map. Then there's Samaria. Then there's Galilee. He has to pass through Samaria. John makes note for us in this little parenthetical statement in verse 9. The Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. This is a long established issue that predates Jesus' ministry on earth. It's been going on for a long time. But Jesus and his disciples take the quick way through Samaria, passing through the middle of the land. They wind up in this city called Sychar, right outside. The city is this significant well, Jacob's well, dug by Jacob, the patriarch of those who are in Samaria. And here's this conversation that's taking place. A conversation no one anticipated taking place. I don't know if you've ever experienced something like this when you walked into maybe a gas station in a city that you haven't visited before and people look differently than you or they talk differently than you or they behave differently than you and there's just kind of an unspoken rule that you're going to stay in your lane and they're going to stay in their lane and maybe those interactions aren't going to come up. 
But here Jesus pushes the boundaries of that, doesn't he? He, he? Let's look at what's happening. They're traveling. Jesus and his disciples, they're traveling. They're on the road. And we see Jesus as humanity. He's tired. The disciples are tired. They've been on a long trip and they're taking a rest so that they can stop and get food. The disciples have gone. Why are they not with him? The Bible tells us they were off in the city procuring food. They were getting lunch. This is like a long road trip. Somebody decided, hey, is anybody else hungry? I think I saw a sign for a McDonald's. Are we planning on pulling off soon? And so they stop. Jesus is here at the well while the disciples are getting food. Coming back to him. By the end of this scene, they, they, they come back and they witness the end of this conversation that Jesus is having with this woman. Here they are. Jesus sitting at the well. A man. Tired. Fatigued. Thirsty. Give me a drink. There's no denying that Jesus was a man. That he experienced the things that we experience. Here's the Messiah sitting by a well, thirsty, asking for a drink. But there's this religious presupposition that existed before Jesus was there. The Samaritan woman's caught off guard by it. Who is this a Jew asking me for a drink? Does he not know? He's a Jew and I'm a Samaritan. What's wrong with him? Why is he talking to me? There's a cultural boundary that's been long established, that's already been there, and he's talking to me. And so she addresses him, her response. She addresses him and, and clarifies the situation. What are you doing? How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? Jesus has already pushed this cultural boundary. I don't want to move too fast into applying this to our own lives, our own circumstances, but I really want us to consider what's happening here. This is a historical record of a conversation that Jesus, the Messiah, had with a real woman at a real well that we can point to on a real map outside of a city called Sychar in Samaria. I want us to understand what's happening here. Because these are two people with religious backgrounds, and this is something that I feel like I experience regularly. It's tough being a pastor. I don't know if you know this. I have to complain. It's awful because as soon as people find out you're a pastor, the walls go up. There's things that we can't talk about. There's some things that we will talk about, but not the important things. And really, it's not just being a pastor or being a preacher. This is something that we experience as Christians. As soon as people find out that you're a Christian, there's a couple things that they have to figure out. Are you one of those Christians that isn't crazy? Or are you one of those fanatics that are sold out for Jesus? By the way, fanatic just means somebody that loves Jesus more than you. 
They have to ask this question, and as soon as they find out, no, I'm a Bible-reading, knee-praying, church-going, Jesus-loving sellout, the walls go up just like they do for me. I'm not the only one that's experienced that, right? You're sitting at the barbershop, and as soon as they figure out, no, this guy's one of the fanatics. This guy sold out for Jesus. His life revolves around Jesus. This guy, this guy loves the word and he struggles whenever he doesn't understand it and he doesn't know how to apply it. This guy, there's things I can't talk about with him because he's one of those Christians that actually believes what the Bible says. He's one of those Christians that actually believes that sin is bad for us. He's one of those Christians that really believes that God wants to control the way that we live our lives. There's things I can't talk about with him. This is the same response the Samaritan woman gives. Don't you know? You're one of those Jews that came here in history and burned down the temple that my people built so that we could worship God on this mountain. You're one of those fanatics that thinks that God Choose, chose a people and he's going to watch after them and he's going to protect them and he's going to care for them and that he loves them. And you came over here and burned down our temple because you didn't want us worshiping in a way that God didn't prescribe. I can't talk to you. Why are you asking me for a drink of water? Don't you know that I'm a Samaritan and that you're a Jew? I want you to think about the context in this because Jesus' response when I was studying this, I got stuck on this point because when I ask people why they love this story, why do you love the interaction that Jesus has with, with the Samaritan woman? Why does this stand out in prominence in your mind? People, the response, even my response, is the compassion. It's the love that he shows how compassionate he is. But think about this context. This is a Jew speaking to a Samaritan, a Samaritan woman, specifically with a background of being hurt by religious elite, somebody who in their history experienced his people coming and burning down their temple. Jesus says, if you knew the gift of God, I don't know if you got it, but when I read that, it really caused me to pause. That's not very sensitive. This is a Jew speaking to a Samaritan with everything that they've gone through. He just reinforced what happened in history. He said, if you knew the gift of God. You're a Jew speaking to a Samaritan. If you actually knew. If you actually knew the gift of God. I actually thought this was kind of rude. I got stuck on it for a little bit. And I realize that it's important to look at what Jesus keeps saying because he doesn't stop there. He says, if you knew the gift of God and who it was that was saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. 
Jesus is responding to this religious presupposition. This dogma, this stereotype, whatever frame they've come up with of what a Jew thinks and believes, he's responding to this prejudice. And he's saying, don't you see that what you're doing is prejudice against me? Look at this. If, if you knew the gift of God, then you would have asked, and, and, and you knew who it was that was asking you for a drink, you would have asked him for a drink, and he would have given you living water. Jesus isn't getting caught up in the minutia and the distractions of all of this prejudice. He's, he's moving past it. He's bigger than it. Like, theologically, he's bigger than it. He's God. <laughs> Duh. But this is the same mindset that Christians need to have whenever we approach people in this world. Look, he's not getting caught up in Jews versus Samaritans. He's saying, I'm not a member. I'm a member of the kingdom of God. I'm a member of something that's way bigger than Jews versus Samaritans. This is the kingdom of God versus the world and what the world thinks we should do. Look how much bigger it is. If you knew the gift of God, not because I know it just because I'm a Jew, but because the gift of God is bigger than this somewhat trivial, in the sight of eternity, certainly trivial. If you knew the gift of God and who it was that was asking you, would you give me a drink of water? You would have asked him. For a drink and he would have given it to you. The kingdom so much bigger. Woman, don't you see? I would have given you a drink if you would have asked me for it. I wouldn't have hesitated. These differences you think that exist between us, you've made them up in your own mind. They're not real. And the only way for you to see that they're not real is for you to let go of them. These differences that stand between us that keep me from talking to you, another human being that keep me from sharing with you the most wonderful news that there is in the world, that you're a sinner, that you're going to die because of your sins, you're convicted, that you honestly deserve hell. But God loves you so much, he made a way for you not to do that because he wants to pay that penalty for you. In fact, he did, or at this point would. And he did it because he wants a relationship with you. How stupid is it to let these boundaries get between us that don't even exist? Jesus says, woman, don't you see the kingdom of God's much bigger than that? You think what divides us is spiritual because I believe something and you believe something else? Well, if you actually knew what either one of us said that we were supposed to believe, then you would know that the gift of God is much bigger than what we think is there. This woman was caught up with the differences, but Jesus didn't get caught up. He didn't get bogged down. He moved past. And, and I think his words probably stung a little bit. I think they did. 
if you knew the real gift of God. The reason I say I think they stung is if we look at how the woman responds to him, somewhat of an air of defensiveness in her response. The woman says to him, I'm in verse 11, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us this well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. You see the defensiveness? I would have given you this living water. Where are you going to get it? It it was customary for travelers. They had folding bags that they would use almost as saddlebags. But then if they came up against a well, they could use these to draw water up. And the woman says, I see you don't have that bag. You have no means of drawing water from this well, and you can't climb down there and get it. It's very deep. Where are you going to get this living water? If I would have asked you, you say that you're so religiously pious. You're so superior. You apparently know the real gift of God. And I'm a Samaritan, and you're a Jew, so I've heard this before from Jews. Here we go. Let's go down this rabbit hole. Where are you going to get it? Is this purely hypothetical? Or is your living water different because you're a Jew? Does it come from a different place? This living water that you speak of, is this so great? Where are you going to get that? Because apparently you're greater than Jacob. A significant figure for both the Jews and the Samaritans. This well was dug by Jacob. It has his historical significance. Jacob's children drank from this water. His livestock drank from this water. My people have drank from this water for generations on generations. You say that you're greater than him now that you're going to produce some special living water that's different? Isn't it significant that Jesus is able to have this conversation out? His words stung, but he didn't let them sting so that he could get up and leave. He's ready to have this conversation because in this response, the coin gets flipped. Jesus has changed the conversation, no longer talking about the material things of this world, but now talking about the spiritual things of heaven. And this switches in, I think, the most incredible way. Jesus explains that everything in the world is perishable. That it's not permanent. That you can chase after it and it might satisfy you for a little bit, but it will never satisfy you completely. And it will never satisfy you permanently. Just like we said, Jesus isn't getting caught up with the Samaritan versus Jew argument. He's He's having a conversation about the kingdom of God and the world. Because the gift of God is bigger. It's greater. And here he says everything in this world. It won't fill you up. It won't satisfy you. Look at his response here in verse 12. I'm sorry, verse 13. Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him A spring of water welling up to eternal life. A spring of water welling up to eternal life. It's 
It's going to satisfy you permanently. If you drink of this living water, if you drink of the truth of God's, the real gift of God, which is sacrifice, which is the propitiation of sin, which is our atonement, which is the purchase from death to life that we can have a relationship with God. If you drink of this water, it's going to satisfy you forever. We were in Oklahoma uh, yesterday. Was it as hot here as it was in Oklahoma? I think I, the heat index was 104 degrees. So hot. I was blown away. I walked outside and I was, ugh. I felt like I couldn't breathe. It was so hot. I went back inside. I grabbed a water bottle. I drank the whole thing like a fish. By the way, don't do that with a cold water. If, if it's hot outside, apparently that's not safe. But I did. I drank it like a water that was so sweet. It was so good. It was so satisfying. I could literally feel the dryness in my cheeks starting to expand. Like it was amazing. That water was so good. I, I think I have a little bit of a problem as I've gotten older. I've taken less care of my body and I drink more sodas than I probably should. And so like I'm on this cycle where I like I get dehydrated and I start to get headaches and I'm like, I should really drink some water. This is going to get bad fast. And every time I do, it's like I get addicted to it. Like that water is so good. And I keep going back for more. <sighs> Problem is I keep going through that cycle. I keep wanting more water. Oh, but when I really, really get it, when I really get thirsty, it's... People say water doesn't have taste. But when you really, really want that water, it tastes incredible, doesn't it? This living water that Jesus is offering is so much bigger, tastes so much better, so much sweeter. And we're going to, we'll never lose it. We're going to get, once, once we've drank after this water, this living water that creates in us a living spring that pushes us on to eternal life, when we drink from this water, we keep getting that sweetness. All we have to do is sit back and think about what Jesus did for us. It's incredible. I, I had a friend call me this week, and I, I think he was calling me to convict me of something. I don't know. He, he said, Brother Derek, how are things going? I said, they're fine. He asked about a specific situation that was coming that, that I had shared with him um, that I, I, I asked for prayer for. And I said, man, honestly, I think resolutions, it's just been a week of resolution. Like God's just taken care of so much for me this week. And he said, man, isn't that incredible? Don't you just want to sit back and like quit trying to do more and just enjoy what God has done? Isn't that great? That that living water is inside of us, that we get to keep tasting that sweetness. Look at what Jesus just offered this woman. I, if it's not clear yet, Jesus has said, well, you have this issue. I'm not about that issue. I'm about a bigger issue. And, and here's what I want to offer you. Here's what I would have offered you. This living water that satisfies so that you don't have to keep coming out here and getting water every time you get thirsty to prevent headaches and all that other stuff that happens. This is the gospel, folks. Let me tell you the truth about God's kingdom. Because it's so sweet. And if you never experienced it, I, I hope I've done a decent job of presenting how wonderful it is. 
Because it's something like you've never tasted before, something like you've never known before, and it doesn't go away. It's there for us always, ready for us to turn back to it, ready for us to take part in it. Oh, and it's so sweet. Samaritan woman, Jesus, much better speaker than I am. She's hooked. Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. She kind of missed the point, didn't she? She's made this about material things again. She kind of missed the point that Jesus was talking about something spiritual, something much bigger. She kind of missed the point. But she's interested. Jesus has a parable that he teaches in Matthew about the truth of the gospel being a seed, and it lands, and it lands in a couple of different places. When it lands on hard soil, it might spring up at first. Roots might grow from it and it might sprout, but as soon as the sun comes up, as soon as trial enters into the life, it withers away quickly because there was nothing for it to take root. You cannot plant seed in hard, compacted soil. It has to be tilled up first. The woman's heart is still hard. The soil is not ready for planting. The roots came out. She says, sir, give me this water so that I don't have to come here and be thirsty. The roots came out. She's interested. She wants it. She wants what the, the, the Messiah, the Son of God, this, what he's offering her. But she's missed the point. I wish I had the power that Jesus has here. The, the all-knowing ability to know exactly what to say and how to till up the soil. But if we look at what Jesus says, He says, go call your husband and come here. Keep in mind that He's God. He knew the answer to this question. He wasn't surprised by her response. In fact, He even testifies to the validity of his, her response in more detail than she even offered because He knows all things. So why does he ask this question? Go call your husband and come here. Why does he tell her to do this? Her response is, I have no husband. I have no husband. Why does he do this? Folks, whenever we talk with people, the truth of the gospel is sweet. If we could do a sufficient job of explaining how wonderful it is to be a child of God and to know what He's offered us and to know what we have and what we're able to give to the rest of the world because He's given to us and He's made us partners in this ministry so that we could share it. This is, in fact, His plan of sharing it with other people. If we knew how incredible it was and how amazing it was and we were good at explaining it, everybody would be all over it. They'd be like flies hovering over bacon left out or it, would be incredible. They would be all over it. Everyone would be coming to us. I want some of that. The problem is this woman has some ignorance. First, she doesn't know who she's talking to, right? She, she says up here, Jesus says, 
if you knew who was talking to you. She doesn't know who she's talking to. Two, she doesn't know what this living water is all about. She doesn't know that there's something bigger than what the world has to offer. Three, she doesn't know how to get it. She's hooked. The seed has sprouted roots. It's ready to grow, but the soil's not ready to nurture it, to take care of it, to foster it, to real growth. The only way that people will get from a place of being in bondage to conversion is if there is genuine conviction. And this is the part that really sucks whenever we're in church because we want to talk about why people should be convicted. Jesus is not harsh. I said that he's rude, but he's not harsh. He's speaking the truth. And this is the most incredible thing here. Go and call your husband. And the soil of this woman's heart is plowed through. Look at her response. This is the shortest response the woman has had thus far in this conversation. I have no husband. This isn't just a statement. This is a confession. Sometimes the hard part about reading the Bible is that I mean, it's not a video. I can't look at people's facial expressions whenever they were speaking and they were saying these things. I have no husband. But I think the woman's attitudes changed. Just looking at her words, just looking at what God decided to inspire John to record, just looking at her words, she moved from being defensive to asking Jesus for this living water that he was offering. Speaking in long responses. Saying, I have no husband. I think she probably looked down at the ground when she said that. I think she was a little bit remorse by that statement. I think her heart was softened because she moved from talking about just these spiritual things to it actually having something to do with her life. We struggle sometimes to make application from the Bible, but when we do, what we're really doing is we're avoiding God actually speaking to us. God has preserved His Word and He's given it to us. He's recorded the story and preserved it so that we can study it today, so that we can look at it, so that we can see what Jesus' ministry was like on earth, so that we could look at it as a game plan, so that we could consider what it means to our own lives because we have to experience the Bible. If you come to Bible study and you leave unchanged, I'm not just talking about being converted. I'm not just talking about being saved. If you come to a Bible study, if you go on a prayer retreat, if you spend time with God and you take nothing away from it, 
et vous. You're like the woman. You miss the point. There has to be real application, and somebody can't make it up for you. There's some people who are gifted with encouragement. I'm not one of those. And let me explain what I mean by encouragement. Giving people biblical advice about next steps and actions. I'm not good at it. It's probably because whenever I read the Bible, it's so specific to me. I can't get outside of my own head because it, it burdens me so much. I can, I can lead you in what I'm doing, but I don't know how to lead you in what you're going through. And I'm so thankful for those people who are in our church who have this gift of, of, of encouragement and who are able to provide real application for people. But guys, it's not their responsibility. It's yours. You have to make real application. You have to do real things. You have to really be moved. There has to be real action that comes out of it. There needs to be a plan. When you make application, it should include some things like when are you going to do what you're going to do? What are you going to do? What time? Where? If the application of this message for you this morning is that you would have an evangelical ministry like Jesus, when? Because if you stay in your house all day long, it's never going to happen. So what day, at what time are you going to leave to go somewhere where you might have an opportunity to witness to somebody else? If your application from this message is is that you would be convicted of sin or that you would really understand conviction and that you would be able to confess like this woman confesses before the Son of Man, the one who would hang on a cross and says, I have no husband. How are you going to get out of the way of your own confession that you can come forward, that you can really confess before God? If your application is this, because I think this is the one that really stuck stuck out to me this week. When we look at this conversation that Jesus is having with this woman, everyone says, They love the compassion that he shows in going to this woman that would have been a social pariah. They love the compassion and the love that the Lord shows in his ministry as he goes to her. But as I walk through this and I actually look at the Bible for myself, he's very direct in presenting her with truth even though it might offend her. How do I make sure that I do that? Paul, when writing to the Ephesian church, and actually, if you want to go over there and look at it, Ephesians chapter 4, Paul gives us a picture of what speaking the truth in love looks like. Because this is the most important point. We cannot speak truth to people who need to hear truth if there is no love in us. This is where we get caught up sometimes. And and when we're talking to people, we want to tell them the truth that we know that's convicted us. But we don't want to talk about how it's actually made application in our life. Because it's a struggle. It is a spiritual war. 
Or we go to the other side and we say, I don't actually want to talk to people about the truth that they need to hear because I don't want to offend them. I love them too much to do that. Paul gives us a picture of what that should look like specifically in the church when Christians are speaking with other Christians. If you don't mind, read really fast Ephesians chapter 4, verse 13 through 16. Just three verses. Paul writes, So that we may no longer be children tossed and to and fro by the waves that are carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness, and deceitful schemes. Ah, that was verse 14. Let me back up to verse 13. I'm getting, I want to take a deep breath. I'm starting to get excited because when I look out, I, th- I think I've maybe preached too long and some of you have fallen asleep, but I really, I really believe that we should keep going on this. It's important enough because I really think this is the most important piece that we could pull out of this narrative. Ephesians chapter 4, starting in verse 13, the Bible says, Until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to the mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of every doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. When we speak truth to the world and to Christians, if there is no love in the way that we speak, We are also devoid of the truth. The message that Jesus presented to this woman was not unnecessarily harsh. He was presenting the offer of life water. The truth of the gospel is that God loves you. So if you speak with somebody, maybe even to correct something wrong that they've done to you, If you speak to somebody in such a way that there's no love in the way that you speak, you've thrown out the truth of what you're trying to say. You've taken love out of it. Likewise, if you say you love somebody, who's burdening the spirit because they're walking in sin, who's unable to grow spiritually mature because they have unrepented sin in their life and you refuse to go to them about that issue, you refuse to tell them the truth, you're lying. You don't really love them. Truth without love is not truth. 
love without truth is not love. If you refuse to have a difficult conversation with somebody who has religious presuppositions, who assumes that you're one of those crazy fanatical Christians because you're worried that it will make them feel uncomfortable or it will make you feel uncomfortable, you've got it all wrong. It's worth being uncomfortable. And if you have questions, invite them to a Bible study where you guys can look at the Bible. Quit debating stupid things. I want you to look immediately after this woman's convicted, immediately after her heart is softened. Look at her response because she comes in with a curveball. She wants to move the conversation away as quickly as possible from her personal conviction. By the way, everybody does this. When you feel convicted about something, you want to get out of that and go to a place where you feel more comfortable. That's sin's greatest trick. It blinds us to our own need of the gospel and our own need of the truth. Look at the woman's response. Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. I love that. (laughs) Jesus, let me back up. Jesus has said to her, well, yeah, I know that you don't have a husband. Actually, I know that you've had five husbands. And in fact, the man that you're with right now is still not your husband. Lady, you've got issues. Look at this. The woman says, sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. I just think that's funny. I think I'm going to start saying that to people whenever they call me out on my sin. If anybody calls me out on the rug, I'm just going to say, well, sir or madam, I perceive that you're a prophet. I think that's funny. Anyways, let's keep going. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. What a weird thing to say, lady. We were just talking about how you have no husband and you just shifted the conversation way over into left field. People do this sometimes if you get them to talk about spiritual things and they start to get convicted. They'll say, hey, let's talk about the nature of the church. Let's change the topic. Or my favorite, this is, people are addicted to this one. Well, what do you think about the end times? Everyone wants to talk about the end times. There's not a whole lot that's personally convicting there other than if you believe in God, you get one side of the end times, and if you don't, you don't. Let's talk about something that's not personally convicting. Let's change the subject. Let's spend our time talking about something else. Jesus doesn't get bogged down, though, does he? He says, actually, lady, I'll respond to that because this is what you need to hear. It doesn't matter where you worship. Because God's not interested in where people worship. I'm coming into this world. He's sending the Messiah. I'm setting all of these things aside so that we can worship God the way that he wants. He says, God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. Real worship has nothing to do with location. Because, wait, God's everywhere. That's what he means by God is spirit. He exists everywhere because he's spirit. He's not bound. And that doesn't mean that he goes from place to place. He's everywhere all at one time. God is spirit. You don't have to go to the temple. You don't have to go go here to this this mountain near Sychar where where you worship. You don't need to go to Jerusalem. Actually, it doesn't matter because real worship has nothing to do with location. Worship means that you worship in spirit and in truth. And I know you don't want to hear that because you're convicted right now. 
and you're trying to change the subject, and you're trying to distract me by talking about this historical nuance that I've already made clear I don't care about, because I'm here for the kingdom of God, not this worldly prejudice that's built up between us. Real worship is spirit and truth. So lady, you are ignorant of three things. You are ignorant of who I am. You are ignorant of what this living water is that I have to offer. And you're ignorant of how to get it. Convictions happened. Repentance has happened. Well, maybe not repentance, not yet. But at least conviction has happened. Your heart has been softened. Let me replant that seed. And look at this. I don't know where the... The Samaritan woman would have got this. She says, verse 25, I know the Messiah is coming. He who is called the Christ. And when he comes, he will tell us all things. This must have been a seed. Somebody long ago must have said this or she picked it up and read it somewhere and just thought that it was good. She didn't really understand it, but she kind of took it. And this is the word of God just kind of buried in her heart. But it hasn't it hasn't been watered yet. This is what it's like sometimes whenever we evangelize people. We don't always get to a place of confession. We don't always get to a place of conversion. Sometimes that word of God is just planted. And here's this little truth that the Samaritan woman has just hanging out. And Jesus is about to water it. And it's about to bloom. And it's about to be huge. Look at verse 26. I who speak to you am He. If you look in the Greek, Jesus doesn't just say, I am He. He says, the one who's speaking to you, I am. Not only is He acknowledging that He's the Son of God, that He's the Messiah right here, like irrefutably, that's what He's saying. I'm the Messiah. I'm the one that's coming to explain to you these things. The seed's been planted. I'm about to water it. It's going to be awesome, and it's going to grow. This is, but he uses the name of God. He says, I am. Isn't that interesting where the story begins and where it ends? It starts with Jesus being a man. He's thirsty. And it ends with his divinity. His all-knowing ability to know the actual backstory of this woman, to be able to call her to confession, and, and all of this, and to acknowledge that He is God. So much we could take away from this. We could spend weeks looking at just this one narrative, but let me offer just a couple of recommendations. Look at Jesus' playbook. The point of what Paul was writing, what I read in Ephesians chapter 4, was that when, basically, that you've got to be spiritually growing until you're exactly like Jesus. You've got to look like Him, talk like Him, think like Him, be like Him. Until you're there, you have to be spiritually growing. And the only way that you are going to be spiritually growing is if you are practicing regular biblical disciplines that bring you to God. Read your Bible and don't just read it for academic purposes, but apply it to your life. 
Make it mean something because that's what's going to make it mean something to somebody else. Be involved in evangelism. It blows me away. This woman literally was just saved. She realized that this is the Messiah. She leaves her water jar there and she runs into the city and she tells everyone, come and see a man who told me everything that I've ever did. No hesitation, 100% zeal. My life was just changed forever. I got to talk about it with you. Have that much zeal when you talk about people. Don't be worried about the awkward. Man, just get used to it. Life is awkward. People are awkward. I'm awkward. If you're in this church, that means you you get to interact with me. God bless you all. (laughs) And I'm awkward. So we got to get used to a little bit of awkward, especially if we're going to see people be saved. Because if you actually love them, that awkward really doesn't matter anymore. Even if it's uncomfortable, it doesn't matter anymore. Because if you really love them, if you really believe what the Bible says, that if somebody doesn't know Jesus, they're going to hell, be bold. Three. Practice genuine confession. Like this lady. Sitting at the well with Jesus. Her shortest sentence. I have no husband. Sometimes we want to avoid confession because it makes us feel uncomfortable and there's a a high chance that it makes the person we're confessing to feel uncomfortable. But you know what it does when one person confesses? When so one person genuinely confesses before somebody else, it gives the church an opportunity to be the church and to love on that person and to say, guess what? Jesus still loves you and He's still ready to forgive you and He's walking beside you and He's going to help you grow in all things. And I'm going to be here with you for it. And it takes off like wildfire because as soon as that person confesses, somebody else realizes that they need to confess and that person's going to make a confession. And the saints of God's church come alive. It's good for us. Because it makes us, I mean, once we confess, it's no longer a secret. Now I just get to pursue God. And somebody says, yeah, but it carries with it all that shame because now everybody knows my shame. We all have shame. Micah said in our prayer retreat, you know what I say to somebody who, you know what I say to somebody who who wants to keep that shame over me after I've confessed? That's like trying to rob a house that I moved out of. I lived there once. It did happen. I left. Go ahead and rob it. That's not my life anymore. I live over here. If you want to be bold enough to bring the gospel to somebody that needs to hear it, be bold enough to live the gospel the way that God tells us to. Right here. I have no idea how long this sermon is, but I feel like it was long, and I'm so sorry. I, I do try to be respectful of people's time. And I want you to know, if I ever preach too long, 
and you have obligations in the afternoon, that it's a sin to break the Sabbath. So, no, I'm just kidding. Feel free to get up and leave. I, I do not want to hold anyone prisoner. But I think we've preached the word this morning. And I hope God's landed it in your heart. Because he can deliver this message better than I can. So what we do now is we have a time of reflection. This is a time for you to respond to the message. Whether you're saying, I want that living water. Or you're saying, I need to confess at the altar in front of my church. So that they know that they need to be in prayer for me. That's what we do now. So I'm going to be silent. I want to invite our worship leaders up to lead us in a song of invitation. This is a time for the Holy Spirit to keep preaching this message. This is a time for you to respond. And I pray that you would. Would you stand with us as we get ready to sing? Follow, follow me.